0: We are in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. And our chapter breaks and our verse numbering in our Bibles are very convenient. So we can find passages. And yet, one of the downsides to the chapter breaks is they artificially make us think that perhaps a whole new section is coming up. Luke chapter 13 is linked to Luke chapter 12, and you can't understand one without the other, so if you've been not at church for the last four weeks, you've got some catching up to do, if you're visiting this morning, or you just haven't been to to church in a while, or this is, you're brand new to church, what I'm about to read to you from the lips of our Savior might sound callous and unloving. And I assure you, Jesus is not callous and unloving. In fact, He is love incarnate. There's no one more loving than the Lord Jesus. When I began to study this week, in light of the recent tragedy in Vegas, I said, wow, in God's providence, really, we're on this passage. And let me read you the beginning of the passage just to kind of set the table. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So... Some Galileans came from the north down to the south to bring sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem, and sometimes because there were agitators who were rebelling against Rome, Pilate would need to make an example of some people. And unfortunately for these Galileans, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And while making their sacrifices, they were slaughtered by some of Pilate's soldiers and their own blood was mingled with the blood of their sacrifices. You really couldn't, for a Jew, think of a more horrific way to die. At In the moment of the most sacred act of worship, to be slaughtered in cold blood and to have your blood mingled with the blood of the sacrifice you had given to the Lord. And it would cause much confusion because you would think that if anyone would be protected by God, it would be those coming to make sacrifice. And yet how often do we hear of our brothers and sisters around the world slaughtered during their Sunday worship service? And your heart cries out and says, God why how could this be they were meeting against all odds they were putting their safety aside they just wanted to come and and praise your name and that made them easy targets for those who would hate christians they knew where to find them where they would be what they would be doing and so there's the scene so you know what was going on historically And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent... You will all likewise perish. Wow, that's pretty bold. We maybe like a little more nuance. a, A little, could Jesus maybe expand on that theology? And so let me help you sort this out this morning. And you need to realize that the people who are asking this question of Jesus were not coming straight from the tragedy. We get no indication that these were people they knew or even cared about. In fact, it's quite the opposite. So when people are asking callous, heartless questions of Jesus with another lack of humility, then they're going to get a respond in kind. As the Proverbs say, to answer a fool according to his folly sometimes. Remember, this comes at the tail end of a long altercation with the Pharisees publicly. Where Jesus has warned the crowd, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Their false teaching. They are leading you away from God. They are hypocrites. They say they're righteous, but they're not. They're pretending to be righteous people, but their self-righteousness is filthy to, to God. It's offensive to God. So this is not a sermon on the problem of evil, although this passage could be used to help explain the problem of evil. Why does all-powerful, all-loving God, allow there to be evil in the world. It's an important disclaimer that we understand who our audience is. About a year ago, a family that had endured very personal tragedy was invited to attend our church and They happened to arrive on a day that I was preaching on the problem of evil. Didn't know they were in attendance. And the thrust of that sermon was all about who are we to question a holy God. That's not what that family needed to hear in that moment. And God's sovereignty, apparently it was, it was, And yet, I want to warn you that you need to know your audience when they come to you. And they say, how could God allow such a thing to happen? They may not actually be wanting to hear the biblical answer at that moment. Maybe they don't want to hear Romans 8.28 in that moment. Well, you know, God works all things together for the good of those who love them. I just lost a loved one. I'm I'm in shock. Sometimes you need to just weep with those who weep. And Jesus would weep with those who weep. In fact, Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus knowing he would raise him from the dead just a few moments later. Because Jesus cares about our pain and our suffering, he entered into our pain and suffering, didn't he? In the most personal of ways. But that's not who was in the crowd. They were not grieving and weeping. These were self-righteous people. And the question was an accusation. The religious elite in the south had no respect for the Galileans in the north. They were uneducated, unrighteous. And here's this Galilean, this Jesus of Nazareth. Has anything good ever come out of Nazareth? Who is he to be lecturing us publicly? Doesn't he know who we are? Who does this guy think he is in his little band of Galileans? Calling us hypocrites. Telling people not to listen to our teaching. And so one of them in the crowd... Says, hey, what about those Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices? In other words, doesn't that prove that God was judging these Galileans because they're more wicked and more evil than anyone else? That was their theology. So I have this point, number one, that we all have a need to explain reality, especially in the face of tragedy. We all have a need to explain reality, especially in the face of tragedy. And here was their explanation, the religious elite of the day. If you are obedient to God, only good things happen to you. If bad things happen to you, it must be evidence That God is judging you. And the more tragic. The suffering. The worse sinner you are. Therefore. If somebody was slaughtered. At the temple. While making sacrifices. They must be. The most wicked people. And they're Galileans. So we'll just. Say, all Galileans are wicked. Look, God has spoken very publicly his displeasure against Galileans. Therefore, we don't need to listen to your teaching. I don't care how many miracles you do. I don't care if you speak with authority. There's the proof. That's what's going on here. And that's why Jesus gives them this terse response. And he says, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans? See, he's not saying their Galileans aren't sinners. But really, so Job must have been the worst sinner of all time. These people knew the Old Testament. They should know the folly of that. Job wasn't a worse sinner than anyone else. He was your basic run-of-the-mill sinner who suffered like no other man has suffered. You heard Adam Knowles read from Job this morning. Wave after wave of bad news. And then Job said, Naked I came into the world and naked I leave. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in his suffering... He did not accuse God. They should have better theology. These are the keepers of the Old Testament. The teachers of the Old Testament. The leaders of the people. And remember, Jesus looks over Jerusalem and weeps because they're sheep without a shepherd. They have shepherds. Just horrible shepherds. Could you imagine what this theology would mean to anyone at any given moment who had just undergone tragedy? Well, we're so sorry about your family. We thought they were good people, but apparently, obviously, they had a secret life. Now we know. God has judged them. Now, Jesus is asking a rhetorical question here, and we know the answer to the rhetorical question is no, because we're all students of Greek. <laughs> in, the, in the Greek, when you ask a rhetorical question or you make an if-then statement, if the if is in a certain verb tense and the then is in a certain verb tense, you know whether or not the answer to the rhetorical question is yes or no. It's kind of neat. We don't really have something like that in English. We have tone of voice and emojis, so I guess, <laughs> um, you know, do you really think these Galileans, so you would know that the answer is no. So I assure you that the Greek grammar here, Jesus, in fact, it's an emphatic no. And just in case you were wondering, he actually says, I tell you no. (laughs) The strange part is the follow-up, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Perish. So, we all need a way to explain reality. The problem is that without God's revelation, we will get the explanation wrong. Their explanation was tragically wrong. To think that only good happens to those who do good, and anything that bad happens to you is a sign that God is judging you, is displeased with you. Now, let me be clear that sometimes the natural consequences of sin is that tragedy follows. Think Nadab and Abihu offering improper sacrifices to God. Zapped. Achan and his family hid in their tent, the th- things that God said were abominable and that were not to be taken, and their whole family was executed. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Lord, dropped dead right in the middle of church. Could you imagine? I think we ought to be thankful that this is rarely how God operates. Aren't you glad? he's slow to anger with you of course when we're offended we want justice immediately swift vengeance but if we all got the swift vengeance we deserved nobody would be sitting in church today we we'd all be dead The fact that we're all here isn't proof of God's assurance that we're all doing just perfectly. The fact that we're all here is proof of God's mercy and that he's abounding in steadfast love. Slow to anger. And that Jesus paid it all on the cross so we could be declared righteous. Righteous. I'm glad, though, that sometimes I suffer the natural consequences of sin. It it helps me to not sin anymore, right? If, If there wasn't a consequence, your children would never change if there was no discipline. Sometimes, though, God lets us get away with stuff for a while. Oh, we're not getting away with anything. He lets the line out. Zzz. Sometimes, the natural consequences of our sin negatively affect others instead of us. You say, well, the natural consequence of driving drunk is you get an accident and die. No, sometimes the people in the other car die And the driver lives. say, how is that fair? And so we certainly have these questions. But this isn't a sermon today about the problem of evil. God is good. And he's wise. And he has a plan for all of that that is hard for us to understand but we can trust in His goodness and trust in His wisdom. These people, though, needed to hear, you will perish if you do not repent. Why did they need to hear this? Because these were people who didn't think they needed to repent. And before we're quick to Indict the Pharisees. This is a universal human problem. We don't generally walk around thinking, I need to admit I'm wrong. In fact, when I say, look, here's these people who didn't think they needed to repent, you automatically think of somebody in your life who's like that. And we all know someone who's like that. But we could all go home and look in the mirror and I'll introduce you to someone who is like that. It's just when we see extreme examples of it, then we go, oh, that is just ugly. Humility and repentance are becoming a very rare commodity in our culture. When's the last time you heard a politician say they were wrong? They almost can't because that's the end of your political career. It's better that we just all know they were wrong than them actually admitting they were wrong. When's the last time someone in the press said, oops, our bad? Maybe a retraction on page 8 down at the bottom. The best we tend to get is someone saying, well, technically I guess I was wrong, but based on The information I had, technically I was right. Or, maybe I was wrong, but it's because you, yes, I got angry, but only because you got me all frustrated. We're supposed to be this Christian nation, and there's nothing more Christian than confession, repentance, and forgiveness. But we're not seeing a whole lot of it in our society. So these people had an inaccurate theology. They believed that the reason for sudden calamity was always evidence of God punishing a sinner and that the worse the sinner... The more terrible the calamity. And Jesus, how dare you accuse us, the righteous people, of being unrighteous. Let me tell you something about Galileans. Here's proof that God is judging Galileans. Therefore, you have no leg to stand on. Your accusations fall flat. And I'm sure after Jesus was crucified, in their minds, that was even more evidence That Jesus was wrong. And they were justified in their indictment of him. But Jesus does one of his judo moves on him like he does. And he says, Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? Hey, sudden tragedy happens in the south, not just in the north. Yeah, you found an example where it happened to Galileans. Here's an example where it happened to people in Jerusalem. Calamity falls suddenly on anyone and everyone. We all have plans today and we really think they're going to go according to our plans. Right? Everybody says that until the tragedy hits. And we're none of those people at the concert in Vegas were expecting to be showered with bullets. They wouldn't have gone. In 18, we're walking along in Jerusalem, and a tower was being built. Probably had something to do with the Pool of Siloam, and it would be a guard tower because a city would want to guard its 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 water. And who knows? An earthquake, a sloppy builder. A couple weeks ago, a climber in Yosemite died. Junk fell off of El Capitan. He heroically dove on his wife at the last minute and saved her life. That wasn't in their plans that day. And so Jesus is asking really? So those 18, what about the other 10? just a few steps away. They were were more righteous or less sinful than the 18. This is ridiculous theology. It's ludicrous. He's calling them out publicly again. So, at first blush, you're saying, boy, how callous. But remember, these aren't people who are weeping and I don't get it, Lord. Please explain to us. Because he'd give them a different answer It would be the same answer, but from a different direction, different tone, because the answer is the same in either case. All have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. We're all going to die. It's just we stomach death a little better when it's a long, fruitful life, and then quietly we went in our sleep towers falling on people like on 911 we don't we don't have categories for that kind of death 58 getting slaughtered like fish in a barrel at a concert and you say well i'm glad our theology is straight and people don't believe the way the pharisees believed anymore no Did you hear what the CBS reporter said? Well, it was a country concert, so they probably deserved it. She put it on her Instagram and then pulled it down fast enough. (laughs) And so CBS fired her, and she got off easy. I only think she's saying out loud what a lot of other people think and are just smart enough to not post it. We've got lots of folks in our country right now who are absolutely certain they know who the sinners are and who needs to be punished or silenced. A healthy, respectful debate is a rare thing anymore in our nation. This saddens all of us and probably frightens us a little. But that's exactly what was going on here. An angry mob, they're ready to kill Jesus. They're plotting. Because he's called them out publicly you are not the righteous people you claim to be. Not only are you sinners like everyone else, what makes you worse is that you don't think you are. That's the worst kind of sinner, the unrepentant sinner. And so his warning is that it's not that Jesus is saying, hey, look, if you don't repent, you're going to die like these other people who didn't repent. That's kind of what it sounds like on face value. And we all get confused by this passage because you're like, well, wait a minute. He just told them, I tell you no, but unless you repent, the same thing's going to happen to you. Like, well, wait a minute. Did the tower fall on these people because they didn't repent? And if I don't repent, something like that's going to happen to me. That's obviously not what Jesus is saying. You have to connect it back to Luke chapter 12 where he said, when the Lord returns, it's like a thief in the night. You don't know the hour you're going to stand before God. God doesn't tell you on this date at this time is when you are going to be judged. And so you must be ready at all times. You must be repentant now and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. It's not a work that earns your salvation. It's the fruit of evidence of your salvation. As Craig read this morning from Luke, And it's also in Matthew that you bear fruits of repentance. So again, I want to be clear. Jesus isn't saying, if you repent, then nothing horrible like this is going to happen to you. Well, what do we do with all of the martyred believers? The point is that death comes unannounced, but death is coming, and judgment is coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, how do I get ready? Repent. The word literally means to change your mind. uh, No, uh oh, to change your mind. Change your mind from whatever you think is true to what God thinks is true. Whatever you think is good to what God thinks is good. See, the difference between what you think and what God thinks is yours is opinion. His is fact. His is true. He is truth. And when the word tells us that all have sinned, that includes you and me. We're all. And yet it is the natural man who thinks he does not need to repent. Repent of what? I mean, I know the day that I received Jesus, I repented. But ever since then, repentance ought to be a daily part of the Christian life. Because our residual fallen nature will constantly and continually warp our view of ourselves and our righteousness and what's happening in the world around us. So we're always needing to look for ways to have the Bible change our mind. Where am I getting it wrong, God? Where am I not seeing the world the way it really is? Where have I misjudged others? Where have I misjudged myself? Repentance repentance is a way of life for Christians. It's certainly the entrance to eternal life, but it's also the key to ongoing abundant life. It's not. I'm glad I got that repentance thing out of the way when I was eight and I walked the aisle. He said, Well I thought coming to Jesus being forgiven means now that you know love means never have to never having to say I'm sorry. Have you heard this nonsense? Love means never having to say I'm sorry. What? That's not from the Bible. Now Jesus doesn't have to tell us he's sorry. But that's it. That's the only human being ever who doesn't need to repent. And yet, look how amazingly humble he is. If anyone had a right to be, to lord it over people, as it were, it would be Jesus. And yet he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In Philippians 2, telling us how Equality with God wasn't something that he grasped, although he was equal with God. But he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. The most ignoble way anyone could die. The cross was reserved for the worst of sinners. And because he humbled himself in that way, God has exalted him. He's exalted him and given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus Every tongue will confess He's Lord, and every knee will bow on heaven and on earth. So we know these things, and yet we have trouble living these things. We know these things are true, but humility is not as common as it should be for people who call themselves followers of Christ. Israel should have been a humble nation. You think about their history and God choosing them, and God telling them, I'm choosing you not because of if there's anything better about you, and I calling you out of slavery, and I'll deliver you from slavery and bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that you didn't set up, a land you didn't cultivate, a land you didn't deserve. And you are going to be a nation that exalts God by showing the rest of the world what humility and being contrite of heart looks like. And he goes on to tell this parable. So now he's going to kind of move from the people who ask the question and make a general indictment of Israel as a whole. And he says a man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. Now why would you plant a fig tree? You want figs. You want figs. And he came looking for fruit on it, and it did he did not find any. And he said to the vineyard vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit. How long has Jesus been ministering? Three years. On this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? You heard passage Craig read. John the Baptist saying. And even now the axe. Is being placed at the root. If we don't find fruits of repentance. What do you do with a tree that doesn't bear fruit? You cut it down because it's using up nutrients. Nutrients. It's, it's not only not providing, it's worse than not providing. It's using up. Why does it even use up the ground? The whole point of this passage is repentance. Israel must repent and bear fruit. We must repent and bear fruits of repentance. And he answered and said to him let it alone serve for this year too until I dig around it and put in fertilizer and if it bears fruit next year fine but if not cut it down. This part of the parable speaks to God's patience. He's patient. He's slow to anger abounding in steadfast love. The Lord desires that none should perish but that All men should repent, though we know from the Bible that all men will not repent. But it is God's desire. He takes no joy in the punishment of the wicked. So I have the verse from Matthew, same verse from Luke that we heard this morning. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you could say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham for our father, We're immune to God's judgment by our heritage. Or we're immune to God's judgment because we do everything right. The question then is, why won't people repent? I made my list. You could probably make your own. Let me give you my list here. And this is for you. This isn't for you to think of that person who won't repent. (laughs) Yeah, they never think they're wrong. This applies to all people. This is universally true of all of us. So, number one, we don't think we're wrong. If you were suspicious of yourself, you would take the time to question, what am I missing here? Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I have offended, intentionally or unintentionally. Maybe I don't know the whole story. Maybe I didn't take enough time to walk in another's shoes. Maybe there is a better way. Or maybe it's not better, but why does the better way always have to be the way? Some of the things we hear about in marital counseling are so petty. Would it kill you to just... Number two, even when we're wrong, we tend to blame other people for our mistakes. That's not repentance, blame shifting. Think Adam and Eve. Adam, what have you done? Could you imagine how different the story would be if Adam immediately had said, I ate from the tree you told me not to? I'm so sorry. I guess the rest of the Bible would be boring. <laughs> no drama. Instead, he says, That woman you gave me. And Eve says, That serpent you put in the garden. And they blame God. Number three, you're too proud to admit you're wrong, even when they know they're wrong. And they know everyone knows. You see the, the anger and the hostility, and their face gets red, and they're embarrassed. And instead of just humbling themselves and saying, You're right. And then the next thing you know, you're changing the subject to all, Yeah, but what about that time that you, and like, we're not talking about that time. We're talking about right now. Or they pull the, fine, technically I was wrong, but only because I had this, this this boss, my first job, well, second job after college. I was fired from my first job after college. But it wasn't my fault, see? <laughs> they were wrong. And he used to, that playful banter between you and your boss where he asked you to do something and you're like, I think it'd be better if we did this. And, and uh, he would say, you need to know something. I've only been wrong once in my life. I thought I was wrong about something and it turns out I was right. (laughs) And he said it with a laugh but underneath the laugh not so deep was don't question him. Now, the neat thing is I became a Christian later in life and went back to visit my old boss and confess some sins I had committed as an employee and went to pay restitution. And after the whole confession and all the tears, he smiled and he said, I found Jesus too. Yeah. When I took that job, he was was in the middle of going through a a divorce and he was just never at the office. And so I... I was doing a lot more work than I was hired to do. Have you ever been in that position? And then you begin to tell yourself, well, since I'm doing more work than I was hired to do, I have liberty to do X, Y, and Z. So, very sweet. God was kind to to both of us. And very sweet to give us that moment in praising the Lord together. Number four, people are afraid that people will use their confession as leverage to control them. If I admit I'm wrong, then I I was here. But if I admit I'm wrong, now I'm here and I'll never get back to here. Which is sad because as Christians we know the Lord says that the reason that you get to be here as a leader is when you put yourself here. I know this is being audio taped and you can't see where my hands are. (laughs) That if you want to be invited to the head of the table, you need to place yourself at the foot of the table. Jesus said, better to be invited to the head of the table than have the host say, what are you doing up here? You belong down there at the foot of the table. Better to think lowly of yourself and have others think highly of you than to think highly of yourself and going around trying to convince other people that they should also think highly of you. Don't you know? I'm saddened for those folks, and I'm saddened when that person is me because they have no idea how ugly that looks in the moment and how the last thing anyone wants to do now is respect that person who is demanding respect. Respect is a funny thing. When you demand it, you don't get it. So if you want it, you need to not want it. It, it. it comes when you're not looking for it. And people spend their whole lives trying to be respected, and they do so by proving to everyone that I'm never wrong. And so I deserve respect. Look at the example we have from David though. So I think I've heaped up condemnation on you enough. <laughs> it is ugly. But the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. Amen. See somebody who's totally locked in and stubborn and they won't give up any ground and they won't admit they're wrong in fact we had one of those common examples here this week at the office with a little 3-year-old who would not say what mommy wanted her to say and <laughs> the battle was on <laughs> and this little girl had been disciplined and There was something wonderful waiting for her on the other side of repentance. You get to go outside and play with your friends. And she just would not do it. Could not do it. Could do it, but wouldn't. And you're just, oh, your heart's breaking. And then your heart's breaking for yourself and for humanity because you're like, this is us. Oh my goodness. This is how ugly we must look to God. And praise God how kind he is to us and how loving and what, He, what Jesus had to die for, that, that ugly sense that I don't need to repent. Here's David in Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Read the rest of Psalm 32 this week. You see this joy of being forgiven. It's a wonderful thing. How freeing to admit you're wrong. How freeing to receive forgiveness. If we say we have no sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will what? Forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Nobody's telling you as a Christian you have to live a sinless life. You can't. Jesus lived a sinless life you couldn't. And his righteousness is imputed to you. What God now is looking for, Isaiah 66, 2. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. and That I will look is like we hear in the Aaronic blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord look. Upon you with favor and give you his peace. Isn't that what you want in your life? It's what I want. It's what, it's what you want. Even if you don't know that's what you want. God says it's what you want. And this is how you get it. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit. And who trembles at my word. That's, that's a humble heart. A heart of repentance. Repentance. Trembles at my word. My word's wrong. His word's right. So let me leave you with some application. Otherwise, this is just good preaching and then it goes in one ear out the other. Especially because you're going to hear a better message from Mike after lunch. So write down some application when was the last time you confessed your specific sins to God? Not, forgive me God, I'm a sinner. You know, I hear God saying, oh yeah, how so? Easy to say I'm a sinner, hard to actually say how you've sinned. When was the last time you admitted to someone else that you were wrong? Ouch. When was the last time you asked someone else to forgive you? And not just that I'm sorry, you know. I am sorry for this, and I see how much that has hurt you, and our relationship means everything to me, and I want it to be reconciled, so please forgive me. When was the last time you asked someone to evaluate your life, especially your humility, Hey, kids, would you say dad is someone who admits when he's wrong? And they go, Pfft. <laughs> or do you really want us to answer that? Like, which, which answer do you want to hear? Is this a trick question? You can only ask people who know who know you. I I hope this week is marked by a flourish of <laughs> repentance and humility and admitting when we're wrong or maybe going back and admitting to something you were wrong about that's been festering under the surface in a relationship for a long time because we're Christians It's the most beautiful thing we've ever heard. You are forgiven. It is finished. It is finished. There is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, make us humble. May we dwell on Christ and His humility and the amazing gift of His forgiveness. And how sweet that day was when we truly knew you loved us and there was now no more wrath or condemnation. Lord, we pray for those who have not experienced this blessing, that they would humble themselves and repent and receive forgiveness that can only be found in Christ, Lord, and for broken relationships. That somebody would be first to step forward and admit their wrong and ask forgiveness. And that the world would know us by our humility. And it would be compelling. It would adorn the gospel for your glory and our good, Lord. Amen. Amen.